I'm Chad Main, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology and legal innovation. Today's show, I'm talking to Michael Callier and Ed Sohn of new law company, Factor. Michael's the head of legal solutions and consulting, and Ed is an SVP and head of legal solutions and products. Factor is a new law company. Some people might describe what Factor does as managed legal services or call it an alternative legal service providers or what have you. One of Factor's main focuses and what Michael and Ed mostly talk about in this episode is providing ongoing legal and contracting solution to in-house counsel and their legal teams. The way Factor describes it is that it has a niche focus on complex transactional work that pretty much forms the core workload of most in-house legal and contracting functions. Michael, Ed, and I talk about how all players in the legal ecosystem can work together to turn out efficient and quality work product. We go deep into how in-house legal teams, their outside counsel, and new law players like ALSPs can collaborate and maximize productivity by leveraging the strengths of each. Both Michael and Ed started on traditional legal paths before they made the jump to legal tech and innovation. Both were big law lawyers early in their career. Michael was at Davis Wright Tremaine, and Ed was at King & Spalding. Ed made the jump about 10 years ago to the alternative legal services world when he started working with ALSP, Pangea 3, and ultimately Thomson Reuters when it acquired the company. After Mike left the law firm world, he was in-house for quite a few years before he got the legal innovation bug. He was in-house at Nike and ultimately ended up on the legal team for Dairy Gold, which is a large dairy cooperative. It was in these roles that Michael started to wonder if there was a better way to get things done. For me, what drove me there was a bit of frustration uh, and some incongruence with my sort of natural way of, of looking at problems and problem solving. So as a traditional lawyer, uh, you know, I, I do enjoy practicing law. I'm still licensed. You know, I've practiced for some time. It's a part of who I am. But I felt an inability to really access the overall problems that our business clients were trying to solve. And that frustrated me because I'm I'm sort of a an eclectic thinker. I like to connect the dots between apparently disparate elements. And so when I went in house with Nike, I, for the first time, and this is after, you know, being on a traditional legal track, discovered that there are lots of different problem solving mechanisms out there. There's Lean Six Sigma, there's information management, there's you know, data science uh, and project management and different types of project management. And it was mind blowing for me. And so when I discovered that, I just got on a track to understand how we can incorporate some of those different problem solving mechanisms into the delivery of legal service so that legal service uh, moves at the same speed and velocity as business. Do you have a technical background? Yeah, I have a master's of science in information management from the University of Washington and the the information school there at the time I attended was the number four uh, information school in the country. And I think a few years ago, it was the number one innovation school uh, in the U.S. So but that was something that I acquired after law school. So what about prior to jumping into the law? Were you into computers? Were you into tech? Were you into project management? What, What was the what drew you to that? Really, I didn't have a technical background. I developed a technical background as a way to bridge the gap between you know, what I knew and, and what I learned as a traditional practitioner and what I wanted to do for clients and believed I could do. I just went on a path. And this was, you know, as far as I knew, before there were innovation programs like at uh, you know, uh, Kent State, Suffolk, uh, and so on. I just developed kind of my own curriculum, even at the University of Washington, 
to find information and, uh, you know, sort of subject matter that I could mold and shape into something suitable for the legal industry. So, Ed, speaking of technical backgrounds, I noticed that you got a computer science degree just down the freeway from me, University of Illinois, uh, in the late 90s. So tell me about that. How do you go from that to, to legal? Because in the late 90s at the University of Illinois, I mean, there's a lot of people that came out of that school that went to Silicon Valley and shaped the internet as we know it today. It's kind of like Michael. I actually didn't have any ambitions. Nobody had ambitions going to uh, even getting a technical background before going into law to think that, you know, we'd work in technology enabled legal practice, you know, or legal services. My journey was really, I went to go and become an engineer. I had always throughout the course of my college career started to discover an interest in the humanities that I didn't know was really there before. I, I was always kind of a math and science person. And just as a happenstance of kind of economic conditions, the dot-com bubble burst while I was in college, right before I was going to recruit for my full-time job. And all the sort of easy jobs you could walk into with an engineering degree out of a top engineering school sort of suddenly weren't there when I was applying to jobs. I had, you know, simultaneously started to kind of, again, investigate my own sort of interest in the humanities, had a minor in English literature, and I decided I'd apply to law school thinking I would go and be like a patent lawyer, you know, and like something, join the patent bar with an engineering degree as is required. That sounded cool. I did a little intellectual property work before law school at a law firm in Korea called Kim and Chang. I thought it was interesting. But once I got into my legal education, I learned that I really wanted to be a lawyer and that sort of the logical thinking that goes with, you know, engineering and science training actually applies really well in the legal field. And then what kind of sealed the deal was, when I did my summer internships with King and Spalding and Wilder, uh, I kind of split my summer between those two firms. And I decided I, I wanted to be a litigator. And so I went into litigation and it wasn't IP litigation. It was just business litigation, commercial, class action disputes, investigations, etc. But the thing that I think is the tether that kept me in the technology was just that I was working in an environment that was very not tech savvy. <laughs> People would call me into their office to be like, how do I get my monitor to rotate? Or like, how do I like whatever? And then sure enough, after a while, you know, while I was doing, you know, briefs and motions and tending to my practice, representing my clients, I developed, you know, a real sort of fell into a natural rhythm around e-discovery, which is an obvious place where a lot of us enter into kind of the industry, you know, where, where technology meets law and digital evidence and working with huge corpuses of big data and large, you know, kind of structured databases. And so then that led me into kind of my career in the alternative services world. And uh, you, know, you discovered man managed document review at Pangea 3, onto a career doing product management and at, at Thomson Reuters, which again, kind of went full circle with my technical background, and then leading technology and innovation at EY Law uh, before joining Factor. So it's been a meandering journey. I'd say technology is not like, it was never linear. I don't think there's any magic formula that says, when you have a technology background, you're going to bring that into the, into the world in this way. But it was sort of there persistently. And like Michael, actually, I invested a lot more into technology enablement and service. We were just talking about this, which is really a human problem more than a technical problem and really investigated that much later in my career, actually. So let's talk about that. You're a factor now. It's a new law company, alternative legal service provider, whatever you want to call it, You know, whatever the moniker, the chosen moniker is. Let's say you meet somebody at a barbecue doesn't know what Factor does. What's the elevator pitch? So the easiest way to put it is that, you know, the 80-20 rule kind of way to put it, at least the talk track I've been trying out lately, <laughs> is that 
we are the outside legal department to most of the world's largest and most high-performing organizations. Not outside legal counsel, like law firms oftentimes offer kind of like outside legal counsel as a service, but rather we are the legal department to the world, right? The workload inside of an in-house legal department is largely transactional, like more than 60, 70% of it is just contracting in terms of their direct workloads. And that's primarily what Factor does is contracting really at the level of complexity that in-house counsel usually takes uh, or like an in-house contracting function. And so the easiest way to say it is that you know, rather than going and building your own contracting function, your own legal department with a bunch of an army of lawyers that handle all these contracts, commercial procurement, you know, real estate employment, is does whatever, just use Factor. And we're, we're sort of the legal department to the world. Yeah, I think that's right, Ed. We help to solidify the position of legal departments as integrators. So legal integrators, you know, When I look at legal departments, legal departments that I've worked in, legal departments that we support today, legal departments touch every part of the business. And they're one of the few departments that that do so in such a dynamic way, where the voice of the legal department uh, has so much influence. And one of the things that we can do and that we do as an organization factor is to help our uh, legal department clients leverage that connectivity and that influence in a way that helps to drive greater and more significant strategic impact. One of the things we agreed to talk about today was the battle between using law firms, consultants versus new law. Do you really think it's a battle? I personally do. I think it is a battle. So do you agree with that? And if so, why is that? And how do we fix that? Because it shouldn't be a battle. We should just all work in unison. Yeah, that's a great question. Ed and I were talking about that earlier as well. And look, I respect the perspective that it's a battle because some folks actually do hold that perspective. I don't agree that it's a battle. I don't think it's a battle between law firms and new law providers or ALSPs. I think it is, though, uh, a battle against a particular perception that there is some incongruence between those two stakeholders. Specifically, what do you mean there? What's the incongruence you're referring to? Well, the absolute best thing that we can do for our clients, if we look at ALSPs and, and law firms, is to partner together. Because those two organization types have really different strengths. You know, so when we look at sort of the, the traditional lawyer, you know, where do they spend their time how they've been educated, and so on. It's really about that advisory muscle, the subject matter expertise in a particular area, whether it's IP, trust in estates, um, antitrust, uh, commercial, whatever it is, very, very uh, focused and narrow. And some of the most successful practitioners are the most focused, and that's wonderful. ALSPs, on the other hand, What we're really focused on, in Factor in particular, is taking that subject matter expertise and optimizing it so that it can be delivered to the right folks at the right time in the right format at the appropriate level of velocity to address, you know, some of the business issues that some of that high, uh, sort of high volume, high complexity work typically touches. Ed, is it a battle? 
No, I totally agree with Michael. I think that it should be a collaboration. And we have offerings at Factor that are really focused on driving that collaboration. When I was in the eDiscovery document review world, uh, we were able to kind of take a company whose inception was really at Pangea 3, focused on that competition with law firms who are still doing a lot of eDiscovery document review and, you know, going kind of an end run directly to the corporate client. And that could seem like really strong competition. Don't send it to a first year associate at $250, dollars an hour send it to Pangea at 35, you know, like it makes a lot of sense. And so that did feel like uh, competition, but actually it was disruption. I like that disruption. That's better. I like that disruption. And after a while, you know, uh, we were able to sell directly to law firms. And that was, you know, the good work of my former colleague and good friend, Joe Borstein, who was able to kind of spearhead our law firm strategy and demonstrate to law firms that we're better at identifying, you know, um, fact out of huge swaths of documents and be able to consolidate that in a way that made sense. And law firms started using us to a significant kind of fraction of our revenue where it was previously zero. So I don't think that at all, like, and we believe that that's the case at Factor. We believe that's the case in the transactional world as well, that there's actually operational and execution and diligence related tasks and even, yeah, drafting of certain um, side documents and uh, agreements that we absolutely are the better fit solution for that workload. And that there is some disaggregation to be done, not to take work away from law firms, but to really an unlock and enable law firms to uh, live into their highest value. And so it really is about finding the different solution to the different workload. And inside of law firm practice, there are ways to even slice that up a little bit. But you know what we found is that there's actually a lot more receptivity to that now with the legal demand and the law in the, in the world being what it is. Law firms are turning away transactional work, actually because of a lack of bandwidth, because they have sort of stuck to a model that has kept all of that into, you know, the traditional model of legal services delivery. And the alternative legal service world is ready. And we're seeing a, a huge amount of interest in uh, our ability to kind of collaborate on those matters and, and find ways to kind of work and serve our clients in a way that's truly like a win-win-win. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other data points out there that kind of signal that there's a real sea change happening, clients wanting more partner build hours, clients going to law firms for, you know, really that premium legal advisory work and putting a lot of pressure on sort of like first and second year billable hours and, you know, not wanting to pay those, you know, that on the junior leverage. And uh, you're seeing rates go up by like 5, 10, 15% across the board in, in the last year and the coming year, uh, because there's a premium on that legal advice. And so law firms are more and more leaning into that space of that really differentiated extremely high level of expertise and alternative legal services are really coming into their own as you know the best equipped to effectuate execution of legal workloads not necessarily that high level legal advice but high levels of process expertise and high levels of you know operating of stability and, and execution consistency and so i think that it absolutely is not a conflict because we should be doing different work and many times collaborating together when we come back in just a couple of minutes, Michael and Ed explain why some legal problems may actually be business problems and how using the right tech, people, and process for the right tasks frees up attorneys' time to focus on what really are legal problems. We'll get back to my conversation with Michael Callier and Ed Sohn in just a second, but I want to let you know if you go to tlpodcast.com, there's a dedicated episode page for every episode with show notes and more information about our guests and a lot of the stuff we talk about. Also, if you want to subscribe, you can pretty much find us wherever you get podcasts. While you're there, if you like us enough, hope you give us a favorable review. If you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on LinkedIn or on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Chad underscore Main. All right, let's get back to my conversation with Michael Callier and Ed Sona Factor. 
Michael's just about to fill us in on how it's technology and business needs that are driving changes in legal. The thing that's really, one, driving the change, it's less technology itself and some of the circumstances that make technology necessary and also feasible to address some of the business problems. So we have, you know, uh, microprocessors are 4 million times faster today than they were when they were first created. You know, 90% of the data that we kind of sift through today has been created over the last two years. Knowledge doubles every 73 days. These, I mean, these stats are amazing, right? And lawyers and the legal industry, we're traditionally knowledge managers, you know? We're, we're managing information. We're, we're trying to help clients kind of sift through all of this data, information, and knowledge to make smart business decisions that mitigate risk. And so with that increase of information, there's a need for tools, and not just tools, but sort of a mindset, skill set, and tool set to navigate that new environment effectively to continue to do the good work you know, that law firms are, are known for. And that's really what's driving the change. And so when we find technology that actually works, it is designed to help lawyers get back to lawyering, you know, the thing that lawyers are good at and, and do well and, and clients pay them for. We hear that all the time, though. Let ALSPs do this bucket of work. It will let you do real legal work, high value work. How do you convey that? How do you explain that with some real world examples that, hey, this will let me as a law firm lawyer or an in-house transactional lawyer do the stuff that's really important that I should be doing rather than the more tedious stuff? An example, uh, let's take a simple example. Let's take playbooking as a knowledge artifact. So playbooking, it's just like with a, like a football team, for example. Playbooking mean a playbook for how a particular type of contract is handled. That's exactly right. So, you know, the idea is that um, when uh, lawyers or non-lawyer sort of paraprofessionals uh, in legal departments have a clear line of sight as to what's coming and what to do about it in any given contracting situation, they can then use their uh, creativity, uh, their ability to manage some of the multiple variables that come up in a contracting environment, their proximity to other internal stakeholders and ability to influence and understand, you know, it's a, it's a two-way street uh, to do higher level work. And when we say higher level work, we're not just talking about, you know, bet the farm litigation or, you know, major uh, acquisitions or, or that sort of thing. We're also talking about higher level strategic work, which is ultimately relationship driven. So the more time our internal clients have to focus on what they're best at, you know, and then in terms of uh, practicing law, but then also developing relationships with their internal stakeholders, understanding those business problems more intimately and being a strategic partner in how the business navigates those business problems. That's what we're trying to optimize. And they're in a perfect position to do it. And oftentimes they can't do it because they're drowning in, you know, sort of process-driven problems and data-driven problems. And that's one of the things that we help with. I think one of the things that, Michael, you tapped into that I, I want to really expound on is this idea that letting lawyers be lawyers is letting lawyers be like users. You know, it's not about like, oh, hey we uh, are going to take all this legal work away from you. And so you're not really going to be lawyering anymore. 
It's more like, hey, we're going to make tech and processes and alternative ways that we organize how services execute on these workloads. We're going to make them different so that you're kind of users of them and not necessarily individual contributors on them all, right? Uh, because it's not your highest and best use, to Michael's point. I think the other way I would put this that kind of goes to that user concept is like it's about the user experience a little bit. And Chad, to be totally honest, I think that the alternative industry has a ways to go still. The new law providing kind of field of players and also, frankly, kind of the legal operations movement for a second, which I, I hope it's not sort of, you know, sacrosanct for me to kind of call out a little bit of an area of focus and improvement still for that movement, which is there's this weird kind of protest that comes out when they say, look at this perfect process and this workflow. I've engineered it. It's great. Look at this tech. It totally works. All you need to do is take, you know, five webinar trainings and spend some hours on like learning the platform. And then this should just should totally be able to turn these documents way faster. And like, why won't people do it? It's because lawyers are Luddites and they're so, you know, resistant to change, et cetera. So this notion of like letting lawyers be lawyers actually is like coming out of one side of the legal innovation mouth, but then on the other side of the mouth is like, why won't they change everything that they do and the way that they do it so that they can use what we've got for them and it'll make their lives so much easier. And we view our services in, in some similar ways and that we need to teach clients to go on this long journey of like, you know, interacting with new process and, and technology and innovation and an, an operating model and become business managers when nobody went to law school to do that, you know? And I think that it's a user experience problem because from my product background, I can tell you that's not meeting lawyers where they're at. Meeting lawyers where they're at, if you're working with, you know, a contracting alternative provider like us, it looks like this. One day you wake up and there's no more NDAs in your inbox. That's what it looks like. That's what it should look like. It shouldn't look like, oh, I got to interact with all these reports and like data and processes and check my dashboard and log into a new system where I can see where tickets have been allocated to approvals. And that's, it's like one day you wake up and there's no more NDAs in your inbox. You know, one day you wake up and every time that you get what is a relatively routine contract, it shows up in your inbox only on its third turn, where the redlining of most of the provisions has already happened. And there's only something that's really exceptional that requires a little novel legal thinking or someone that's much closer to the institutional legal positions of the client and, and where legal meets business and where in-house counsel should be really, you know, very much in tune and in touch with, you know, the objectives and the, and the kind of core values of the business. Only then do we pull you in to kind of like review the contract. You're not redlining the same indemnification clause, the same limitation liability. Those emails are coming in your inbox on the third term. Right? Letting and you be the lawyer. They, Let, letting yeah. you be the lawyer. So letting lawyers being lawyers is actually an aspiration that has not yet materialized fully. And in fact, like, we're taking that really seriously. Like, we're not just going to teach them that there's this magical way that if they you know, navigate all these barriers, they're going to come to some summit that's going to be awesome. Um, it's not painless, and it's not fast, and it's not free. You know? But there is a way to make the user experience feel more like liberation to go be lawyers and less like you know getting a degree in process and technology you know and so if we do our jobs right it really should allow lawyers to be lawyers i just don't think that's totally happened yet so let's let's talk about that let's let's role play a little bit let's say i'm a gc of a a big company or let's say i'm in-house at a medium-sized company i've been reading these articles about alsps and new law and how you know we can fit these pieces together work in conjunction with my law firms it seems pie in the sky I come to you, Ed, Michael, like, what's my first step? What's the first thing I should do to, to get this ball rolling? 
Because as you just said, Ed, it ain't happening overnight. You can't fix all these problems overnight. So what are these increments? What's the first thing that you would suggest one of these in-house lawyers does? Look, here's what we tell folks. Here's what I believe. And this is from, you know, over a decade of refining how we help clients to solve problems. That's in, you know, the manufacturing environment in China. It's in, you know, legal innovation. It's for, you know, the last organization uh, that I served. A problem well-defined is a problem half solved. And so when a GC comes to us, the first thing to do is to try to get an understanding of what problems they're actually dealing with. Because all this stuff is use case specific. You know, if someone says a technology is going to solve all of your problems, or even a process is going to solve all of, all of your problems, that's impossible. I want to emphasize that too, because, you know, it, with all due respect to our colleagues in software, it is situation-based. And there's no piece of software out there that's going to work for every contract or, you know, every legal question that comes up. And it does require tweaking. Yes. And, and, you know, it's interesting, and Ed was getting to this point, the tweaking is not just about tech configuration, if we're talking about technology. The tweaking is also about literally the mindset and skill set of the users. And what personnel do we have in place to actually make this vision a reality? Which is also a tweak to process, right? Like if you're going to move this person to do it, it's changing the process a little bit. That's right. That's absolutely right. And, and, you know, and so if we start with defining the problem and maybe a group of problems, because they'll have many of them, uh, then we have to understand the root causes of those problems. Like what's, what's actually making this thing such a problem and for whom and how do we know, uh, how do we measure the impact of that problem? And once we have a good understanding of the problem statements uh, and we look to the future and we have like these prospective uh, desired future state in place, we have defined potential use cases for potential solutions, we got to prioritize. You know, where should we start? And when we talk about prioritization, there are multiple elements to take into account, like feasibility. Can we actually do this? And how much is it going to cost? How much time is it going to take? How much control do we actually have over this? And importantly, which problem, if we solve it, will resolve other problems that we've identified? So, you know, the starting point, define the problem. First of all, I have to say I 1,000% agree with that. The reason why consulting belongs inside of a managed services environment like ours and why Michael has come on board and provided just so much value uh, to our clients and to our company is because of that. Uh, most of the time, you know, a problem well-defined is more than half solved. You know, it's clients coming to us being like, I need this. I got a five-minute contract. I need this. It's like, well, okay. Uh, do you really need that? It's like, well, just there's this software that I need. So I need that. Can you make that happen? And we're like, well, what's the root cause of why you have this need? How have you been doing this otherwise? Like, what are the pain points? Why are those pain points happening? Why are they happening in a place like your you know, legal department? Like really getting to that root cause and understanding, helping clients perceive their own needs is like the magic of good consulting, right? And there are charlatans out there in consulting. Like we know who the good ones are. We know that there are charlatans out there who are the smart brains that come in and say like, blah, like I've got a bunch of, sm like I'm smarter than you. That's why you want me to consult for you. And so here are all the answers. And like that, you know, that's not totally without value, but 
It's not consulting. Consulting helps clients see themselves, right? And understand their own needs and like puts that into really important perspective because like we talked about at the beginning, law firms versus ALSPs, it's not about competition. It's different solutions for different workloads and understanding who to go to requires understanding your own needs. I think the second thing of just like global advice to any GC is to learn by doing. It's as simple as that. Like you're not going to learn by theorizing. You're not going to learn by sitting back and waiting for it to be kind of like the sea change to flip to the status quo where you're the, you're now the only one not using it. And I guess you'll just do it out of peer pressure. <laughs> like you learn by doing, you learn by trying. Let's talk about that. Learn yeah. by doing. So again, go back to my original question. Yeah, the, we want all these problems fixed, but we can't fix everything at once. So what's a small problem? Where do you where do you recommend them starting to learn by doing? What should they approach? What should they look at? I think, first of all, you still start with consulting because a lot of times what they think is their biggest problem may not be their biggest root problem. And so you always start with uh, whether that's hiring a consultant or whether that's just doing some of the hard work yourself. It's making sure you fully understand what is the kind of like the, the real problem that you want to solve. Or what's the problem that you think you want to solve and then like what's the root of that problem, right? So that you've got like a full understanding of that. And then secondly, I think it's identifying a relatively safe space to play, right? So to say, here are a set of contracts that may not be at the highest risk, that may be an area that we're just long overdue to refresh that template. Or, you know, we've recently had a lot of attention on it because it turned into breach of contract litigation or, you know, like whatever it is. And it's a risk, but like it's relatively a safe space to try something and to say, okay, let's take this to a consultant. Let's take this to, you know, let's get this templated in playbook to, uh, in a way that might be different than with the way we've historically done it. And let's get a small team over at, uh, you know, an alternative provider to see if they can do this better than we can do this, to see if the economics make sense. And almost every provider out there is willing to try, you know, have the right guardrails and constraints to do a pilot or a POC, just like you would for software. That's what I would recommend is like, don't just you know, like, uh, this is a great podcast, definitely listen to podcasts, definitely learn, definitely uh, accumulate knowledge. You're always going to learn by practice and not just by theory. Agreed. hundred percent. A lot of talk, a lot of talk in all industries and legal tech is no, is no different. Let's open up the black box a little bit. Let's say you, you've got a corporate legal department's contacted you. You've identified some root causes. Let's keep it simple. Let's just talk about a volume contract, NDA. You know, so they've agreed they're going to fix their process. They're going to bring in Factor to help them deal with this. What's it like to work? Like, what's a day in the life? I'm at a company. I get an NDA. What happens to it? You know, how does it get to Factor? What's Factor do with it? How does it get back to the legal department? What are they doing with it? How does it get back to the final counter signatory, the counterparty to get signed? What, what happens there? Yeah, so I would say before we fast forward to how the, you know, what the day-to-day for you know a practitioner looks like with regard to NDAs there's like some work that needs to be done to launch that particular solution and the work to launch that solution includes for example you know defining the corpus of documents or the group of documents that we're going to that we're going to do are, are we you know isolating that to sell side NDAs as opposed to procurement or buy side NDAs for example have we predefined uh, sort of um, a hierarchy of NDA types, country specific could be a thing, right? Or uh, a particular high value strategic product or service that we still want some of that more uh, white glove service or uh, for an internal 
you know, attorney to manage as opposed to it, it going to a factor. So we have to define certain parameters around the type of, you know, not just the type of work that we're going to do, but how we're going to do the work and, and, and what work that is. From there, when we're trying to define how this work gets done, you know, that comes back to that playbooking artifact, right? Because what we want in terms of risk mitigation is consistency, consistent results. We can get consistent results if we can define what good looks like up front and then encourage folks to follow that particular path on a, on a regular basis. Now, when we do that, we build that in, we also have to have uh, a feedback loop because there will definitely be circumstances that we couldn't have anticipated, but that will come up during the course of some sort of uh, negotiation when we're talking about any sort of document. So we define escalation protocols. So if this happens, where should it go? Uh, and there'll be specific instances that we can immediately define as escalation requirements. Like if somebody wants to, counterparty wants to tinker with your IP provision or something like that, immediately goes to resource X. At the same time, there'll be sort of a catch-all kind of escalation resource where if the escalation code or the reason for escalation like falls outside of what we've predefined, then it goes to this other person. Now, the way that we use information as, uh, you know, ultimately a valuable resource is when we have that escalation code that wasn't previously defined that goes to this uh, particular person, we got to record that, especially if, and if that continues to happen, then that particular element becomes uh, a standard escalation path because we know that it'll come up over and over again and now we've caught it. So once you build your system, then you, know, you, you turn it on. So it's interesting, when we talk about systems, typically we're, we're not talking about technology or just technology. We're talking about the people, process, uh, technology, uh, information, uh, data, you know, the whole, the thing that allows us to get from where we are today to where we want to be tomorrow. From more of like a how would factor roll it out perspective, doing all those activities that we do through, you know, a lot of consulting and advisory work up front, running through kind of like what we would call, you know, before a deal actually happens, getting it properly scoped and good expectations. One of the things that's really important about Providers like us, new law providers like us, is that we operate differently than law firms in the, to the extent that we actually will certify things like SLAs, you know, hold ourselves accountable to, you know, smart goals that are measurable and time bound. A, a and law so, firm SLA. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I don't know. A law firm SLA. That's I like, mean, a, I don't know that I might be an oxymoron. Is that, is that? I, haven't, I haven't seen that in like a, an engagement letter before. I've, I've seen some caps and collars, you know, but I, I think, um, you know, and as I get it done. So I feel like, you know, once we get to that point in the contracting and then we can start to launch and that user experience between buying and using, between selling and launching uh, is a really critical one. And it's one, an area where, you know, our consulting group uh, has immense value to kind of be that point of continuity through that whole process. And, you know, getting in front of our people in delivery that are just an unbelievable group of people all around the world. But understanding how do we actually migrate this work into the factor world and start to move those NDAs and, how heavy do you want our tech footprint to be versus a lot of our clients invested into their own technology we can start using. And there's all these dimensions and how we integrate and 
you know, I'll kind of leave it at that because eventually it, it kind of follows an implementation curve and a lot of what Michael des described, there's a continuous improvement piece. There's constantly kind of like living processes and living playbooks that are always being refreshed and updated because um, it's never a one-time thing. And then you get to a point of steady state where it's like, you know, it's just like an old shoe. We've always been there. And I think that, that I, I kind of want to just veer off this answer for a second and emphasize just one point, which is the notion of integration, that seamless integration. When we do this right, that's how our clients view us. And we're not the first ones to do this. I mean, like I've worked at big enterprises that have outsourced their IT help desk, outsourced their HR, outsourced, and they have your domain and your email. And like they they may even, if we're not in COVID times, sit on a floor in your building and their badge has like a little C on it or something like that. But they're really part of your company. They're really a part of your organization. They're the people that you eat lunch with, they're the people that you know, that you call them and you don't think of them as being an outside provider. And that is a tough nut to crack in the legal world. Legal tends to be like very, very focused and smaller teams usually and, you know, very selective in their hiring, et cetera. And outside counsel are sort of outsiders that, you know, need to be managed and coordinated a certain way. Um, and so the notion that an alternative legal service provider could actually become a seamless integrated extension of a legal function is something that we, our clients have found very powerful with us, that when we're working on all cylinders firing and it's perfect, we're not a vendor being managed. We're really just uh, a member of their team right. and an extension of that function. Right. And so that's what we go for. Right. The one thing I'll just lob over as an idea is that, um, like, I hope that this podcast is radically out of date in like a year. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. You got some high aspirations, man. Me too. But <laughs> it's because our industry has no ceiling. Like, you know, this is not like when you talk to an analyst, somebody like Ron Friedman, a Gartner, or someone else, like, the alternate legal services industry has no ceiling. It is absolutely in growth mode. We're just hitting that diffusion curve of, of adoption where we're getting now up that ramp where, you know, it's not just the bleeding edge innovators that are trying this out because of some cost constraint or it's like now becoming really status quo. But we haven't really started to explore what the upper limits of our work is, you know, and people talk about like, well, regulatory practice of law. Yeah, that's that's a very distant ceiling if that is one. There's so much in terms of legal execution that can currently be done under supervision or two people in the street can enter into a contract. They do it all the time. Like there's so much that we can do to kind of execute on legal services. And I think that it is accretive. There's a Jevons paradox here. We're not just stealing legal demand from what, what other people are doing. When you have a utility of high value that it gets turned on like a faucet and like starts pouring resource into our clients, latent legal demand starts to pop up. Like, oh, yeah, I didn't know that I needed this. But actually, yeah, I should sign this contract. Like, I've never oh, thought you know about that. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. And, like, there's actually latent legal demand out there. And, like I said, there's law firms turning away transactions. Like, we are going to be sort of a release valve for this industry in so many ways. And our ceiling is not yet defined. Our outer, outer circumference of the pie is not yet set. And so I really hope that, you know, we're – this entire conversation is almost out of date. Not because – Everyone has gotten on board the bandwagon and has adopted. I hear what you're saying. That's going to be slow going. But because the, the alternative service industry is just getting started still. And uh, we haven't seen the best of it yet. So I'm, I'm really excited about what's ahead. Excited to work with people like Michael. Excited for what we're doing at Factor. And, and just add in one thing to that. I agree with everything that, that Ed said. The way that we get there. Yeah, and this is what, what we're encouraging GCs and other purchasers of legal services to do. Try it. You're going to learn by doing. 
one of the things that folks can do is if you're really you know, confident in a particular law firm or think law firms are, are the right resource, find law firms that regularly partner with ALSPs and incorporate that into your RFP, a requirement that the firm you know, bring an ALSP uh, into a particular project or program. Uh, and if it's a smaller scale, you know, try it. If there are problems that folks need solved and they haven't been, you know, resolved by traditional paths, give an ALSP a shot, particularly where consulting is concerned because, you know, help you define the problem, help you define a future state, help you develop a roadmap to get there, and then come in with the appropriate resources, both ALSP resources and incorporating in law firm resources, internal resources, technology, to integrate the appropriate solution. And I, and I guarantee the process in itself will be beneficial for uh, GCs and other purchasers of legal services because of the learning benefit that will occur. Michael, Ed, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Learned a lot. A lot of great info here. Michael, if people want to get a hold of you, how do they find you? You can find me on LinkedIn and you can, you know, find me on the on Factors website. Just give me a holler. Would love to hear from you. Ed, people looking for you. Where do they go? Same thing. You can find me on LinkedIn. I make an appearance on Twitter every once in a while. And you can visit our website, www.factor.law. And you can get information about what we do and see our promo as well. Well, that's it for this episode of Technically Legal. We really appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can catch us on most major podcast platforms like iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, etc. If you like us enough, we hope you'll leave us a good rating too. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.